Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, August the 17th, 2022. It's 8 a.m. in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States, and it's midnight in Japan, where my guest is. We're going to be talking Japan today. Uh, this time last week, I did a show with Nick Kostov, the co-author of a really interesting new book on uh, Carlos Ghosn, the disgraced Nissan CEO who is now uh, escaped from Japanese justice, if that's the right word, hiding out in Lebanon. Um, and I asked um, Nick whether the Carlos Ghosn story was a, a modern-day Greek tragedy or the parable of a shameless criminal mastermind. I'm not sure if we got a completely straight answer out of Nick, so I figured I could ask his co-author, who is joining us today from Japan. It's midnight, Sean McLean in, in Japan. He's another Wall Street Journal um, reporter who co-authored this book with Nick Kostov on, on Ghosn. Uh, Sean, let me ask you this question before we get started. Um, is this a, a, a tragic story a misunderst of misunderstanding, or is it really a, a, the story of a, of, a, of a modern criminal mastermind? So what really struck me, I, I, first of all, thank you for having me, Andrew. Uh, it's always great to, to, to get on and talk about something that's absorbed the last three years of my life. But um, to answer your question, I'm going to go with uh, some reader feedback that I received. And uh, one reader said that they were struck how things might not have ended up the way they did had uh, people just talked to each other in this whole process. So I'm going to go with uh, leaning towards the tragedy side of the story. As Carlos Ghosn was undeniably a, uh, a great man and a great executive with some pretty glaring character flaws that, uh, that uh, without absolving him of the responsibility of his, of his decisions and his actions, um, it is clear that he has uh, forever clouded the legacy that he would all um, otherwise have had, had he not uh, basically thrown it away for, uh, for a couple million dollars. Remarkable man. There's no doubt about that. Enormously talented. Uh, remarkable story growing up in poverty in Brazil, becoming uh, the CEO of Nissan, going to France and so on and so forth. Uh, 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 Sean, in our conversation with Nick, we talked about Lebanon, we talked about Brazil, we talked about France. And Nick said to me that you were the Japan expert, so you'd be the best person to talk about the the Japanese piece of the story, which actually I think is, is the most interesting. It seems as if um, Carlos Ghosn and Japan uh, is like mixing uh, salt and, 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 and sugar. Uh, they're, they're opposites. Uh, Ghosn was char or is charismatic, cuts corners. Japan is so formal. Was there something... Um, fated in this falling out between Ghosn and Japan because of their different cultures? 
I think the obviously the cultural part plays a role. I th I think in broad sweeps you, you're you're correct here, but there is an, some important nuance to this. Um, the reason why Carlos Ghosn was so successful as a businessman is partly because he was a perennial outsider, right? He was a Lebanese man born in Brazil, early education in, in Lebanon, went to university in one of the pre most prestigious schools in France, uh, went to work in Brazil and the United States and French car maker, and then went on to run a Japanese car maker. He's a perennial outsider. And what that enabled him to do was to really cut through the reasons uh, why something can't be done and really identify the problems and and sort of just cut out all the you know the conversation just get it done that dovetails nicely with uh japanese corporate culture that throws their weight behind the leader so carlos Ghosn liked to talk a lot about how the nissan rescue plan in 1999 uh, was so successful because when he said to his uh, his colleagues that he wanted to, you know, drop debt and cut costs within X number of years, they came back to him a plan that was just basically three times faster. So it wasn't just Carlos Ghosn leading the charge. He really had everybody running alongside him. And those two, those two character traits, while Carlos Ghosn is definitely not Japanese, um, the, those two character traits uh, really sort of dovetailed nicely. And I think it's one of the things that Carlos Ghosn always said was the strength of Nissan and the Alliance is that once you get these different cultures together, um, the diversity does breed uh, sort of innovative thinking and, and greater success. Obviously, let's just be clear, Sean. Sure. Uh, you're, you're talking about the Renault Nissan Mitsubishi Alliance um, okay. and, and, and Ghosn ran Nissan. Um, but Japanese corporate culture is very conformist, isn't it? And uh, as you say, Goen was anything but a conformist. So was this a marriage that was bound to end badly? I don't think so. I don't think, look, I think things could have ended up very differently had Goen decided not to uh, spend, you know, the, the, the twilight years of his time at Nissan figuring out ways to pay himself in secret without having to, you know, go to shareholders or, or if he hadn't, uh, you know, sort of. Well, he sounds more like from... a criminal mastermind than a, a <laughs> tragic figure in a, in a, in a, in a Greek drama, Sean. Look, both things can be true, Andrew. I mean, look, like it, the, the nice thing about the Carlos Ghosn story is, is, is that it, in its complexity, it, 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 it sort of retells as a, uh, a true, as a crime thriller, but it, you know, the, the truth is stranger than fiction. There is just a, a, a depth to the story that I think is endlessly fascinating and and raises so many questions that are important in our time, which is, you know, in Carlos Ghosn's case, if somebody had been watching over Carlos Ghosn, you know, he might have retired as as everybody thought he would as, as one of the greatest executives, not just auto executives, but executives of our time. Uh, he was undeniably talented. He did things that I think no matter what he did, you know, that got him in trouble, you know, our, our achievements, you're never going to take away from him. But because he did these things, nobody's ever going to remember that. All they're going to remember is that he escaped Japan in a box. There was an interesting Bloomberg piece uh, about the Gernsk saga. It's certainly something that intrigues business writers and journalists. Uh, 
Uh, and this piece asked about what the saga, the tragedy, the crime story, whatever you want to call it, says about Japan. What do you think, um, Sean, this says about Japan? I mean, Gone. Gon claims that the Japanese criminal, I mean, he's justifying his escape. And of course, he would justify escape in this way. But he justifies escape by saying that the Japanese criminal justice system is not much better than the, the, the Chinese or the Russian. Well, the Japanese justice system is undeniably harsh. I mean, Carlos Ghosn was, you know, arrested suddenly and, you know, it, with, with, with such swiftness and a surprise that, you know, it was days before we could even get out of him or a representative if he thought he was guilty or innocent. I mean, Carlos Ghosn was held in solitary confinement for over 100 days, interrogated up to 12 hours a day without a lawyer. Um, and it is just not just a grinding process, but a lengthy process. I think it was three years before we got a verdict on the first set of charges regarding um, Carlos Ghosn's alleged uh, not alleged, and he was convicted at this point, but uh, his his underreporting of his income over a period of 10 years, that took three years, and and that was the easy charge. So Carlos Ghosn's thinking was that, you know, he could easily spend the next 10 years of his life, you know, in Japan and die in Japan. So win, lose, or draw, he was, he, it was over. That was the rest of his life. So the, the Japanese justice system is undeniably harsh. Uh, one thing that a lot of people like to bring up is the fact that, you know, cases that go the contested cases at trial and with a 99 over 99 percent win rate for Japanese prosecutors and that's just not a good look um, and you could see um, how somebody with the wherewithal and the the uh, outside the box thinking um, uh, on Carlos Ghosn's point part that would see that escape would be a better fate than uh, you know spending you know his the rest of his good years in a Japanese jail cell. Sean, um, uh, Gohan himself called the Japanese justice system a joke. I think there are other words you could probably use. What does it say about Japan? That, uh, and, and I have to admit that, and again, this reflects my own ignorance, that I was amazed or am amazed by these revelations or facts about the Japanese justice system, about how oh. harsh it is about how few people get off. I mean, presumably police make mistakes. Presumably some cases um, are complicated and, um, uh, and uh, we, we can, you know, justice is that should be ambivalent. I mean, why is the Japanese uh, the justice system so rigid, so uncompromising? I mean, why is a tougher question to answer? It's just, it, it is the way it is and things don't change that quickly. Um, because I think part of it is probably because crime's so rare here that, you know, the number of people that know somebody who had a run-in with the law are fairly low. So there's not a lot of public pressure to change things. And I think, frankly, there's a lot of people that live in Japan and a lot of Japanese people that also weren't aware of all of these things until the Carlos Ghosn case brought it all to light. I mean, I think we're all here uh, living here distantly aware that the Japanese justice system is quite harsh, but I think in its minutia, we really didn't understand it until- well, Even uh, you as a foreign correspondent, someone covering the country? Yeah, I think you, you are sort of vaguely aware of it, but you know, until you really start having a case to follow like this, you're not really aware of like how hard it is to get bail here. 
Um, you're, you know, I was obviously aware that critics of the system call it a hostage justice system, be, um, and that criticism being based on the fact that because bail is so rare, unless you confess to the crime, that there is uh, the 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 argument that there is a psychological pressure being applied to criminal suspects to plead guilty, um, because ultimately, on uh, oftentimes the punishment is quite light compared to your maximum potential uh, punishment. So the argument is that you get a slap on the wrist if you give us the, the check mark in the win column. And so a lot of people choose that that uh, that route as opposed to uh, a lengthy, very painful, um, humiliating uh, legal process. You say, um, Sean, that crime is so low, but one often reads stories or hears stories about Japanese mafia, various kinds of odd Japanese crime. Um, it's not that low, is it? Well, I think I, I think there is a uh, big fish, small pond thing going on here, where um, yeah, yeah, crimes tend to stand out uh, because they're so shocking that they happen here. I mean, the for example, I mean, take for example the shooting of uh, of uh, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe that that happened here. I think everybody was shocked that. Uh, somebody even had a gun to to shoot him with here in Japan. I mean, well, they made the gun. They made the gun, right? So I think crime. It's not that crime doesn't happen. It's when it does happen. It it it's it it is all the more striking um, that you know, and and it has way more news. I mean, like, the things that make the news crime wise here would would barely make the back pages of a very local newspaper oftentimes, but they make national news here. Has Gone become a, a celebrity? I mean, he already was, to some extent, a corporate celebrity in Japan. Does he have defenders? Are there people using his case as an example of why the Japanese criminal justice system needs to be reformed? They were. Um, I think after the escape, all of that has gone out the window. Um, and I, I, I won't purport to speak on behalf of the entirety of the Japanese population. Um, but the, the sense I get is that people were willing to use a Carlos Ghosn's case as a, as a, uh, as, as a sort of standard behind which to sort of argue that we need reforms that, you know, a nonviolent case such as this with a, with a man who, who had everything to lose if you gave him a swift legal process then we could have gotten through this no problem but the fact that you know they sort of made it impossible for him to uh well not impossible i should rephrase that uh they made it so difficult for him to 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 defend himself that uh he he became desperate and left i i think a lot of people sort of any goodwill gone had here was 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 lost when he did that uh, we are forever um, looking for fixes to American capitalism. The Japanese economy is back, although I think the American economy in some ways is back. And a lot of American CEOs are completely out of control. Elon Musk, for example, today announced as a joke, or some people think it's a joke, that he's buying Manchester United Football Club. Um, what does the corporate structure of, um, of Japan tell us about perhaps reforming American capitalism. Um, Gohan said himself about being the CEO in a Japanese company, 
he said, it's absolutely remarkable because you have the impression you can do anything you want. People are so deferential to authority, to what the CEO says. Um, should Japan be a model for reforming American capitalism? Or is it another extreme model of what American capitalism should try to avoid with these hierarchies and cults of personality and leadership? Yeah, I, I wouldn't hold Japanese corporate governance up as a model for the world. Um, one of the problems that uh, that enabled Carlos Ghosn to do the things he did was that there was a complete and utter lack of oversight over uh, Carlos Ghosn's actions. And there was uh, this, uh, Carlos Ghosn is right in in one sense that that when the boss tells you to do something, you know, everybody gets behind the general and they, and they charge. Um, I had an interesting conversation with with another foreigner who ran a uh, with a Japanese organization. And, you know, Carlos Ghosn's stance on running a company in Japan has been out there for a while. And he had an interesting sort of different take on that. Uh, Carlos Ghosn saw running a Japanese company and the the sort of the the obedience that that, that inspired is, is a great privilege that enabled him to do, as he said, whatever he or thought he could do, whatever he wanted. Uh, the person I was speaking to said he had it backwards, that it's a massive responsibility that everybody has basically put their livelihood and their careers on your shoulders and, and they are trusting you to make the right decisions on their behalf. And that's where Carlos Ghosn really screwed up in Japan's mind is that he put his personal desires uh, ahead of the collective good. Um, and so that is the essential problem with Japanese corporate governance and the way Japanese corporate structures work is it relies on the person in charge being a virtuous person. There is no real board oversight, although they're attempting to change that on the change. So that's how Gohan got away with paying himself under the table, that there was no... There was no one there to check him. I mean, the uh, Nissan, apparently, according to the Japan Times, they're not appealing the ruling that the car maker hid Gones under the table pay. Is there some accountability of the of, of, of Nissan itself? Or was it just that Gone could get away with murder there, quite literally almost? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely accountability on, on Nissan's side. So what Nissan did that enabled Gone to... Um, to do all of these things and to, to hide his pay for so many years uh, was they they abdicated whatever board oversight there was on executive compensation and gave that right solely to Gone. So what they they went to shareholders and said, we would like to have you approve a cap on total compensation and then leave it up to Carlos Gone how he distributed that cash. So they basically let the CEO decide how much he could get paid and nobody would ever know. And then what, where Gohan got really into trouble and where he started his uh, the various machinations that ultimately led to his initial criminal charges was in uh, 2010, Japan passed a law requiring individual executive compensation disclosure uh, for anybody earning more than a million dollars. And Gohan, instead of disclosing and, and justifying to shareholders and the public that he was worth 17 to 20 million dollars, he decided he would take a 50% pay cut because he didn't want to have that conversation. And then ex instead of the additional step that got him into trouble was instead of accepting that he would be paid 50% less because he didn't want to argue to be paid more, 
he tried to find ways to get that money in secret without telling shareholders. And as a, at a publicly traded company, that is, um, it's not just morally wrong. It's also, you know, just looks, it's not great. You know, <laughs> it's not the sort of thing you should be doing. Yeah, it's not a great a tragedy. Um, uh, uh, Sean, uh, Nissan profits are up apparently tripling uh, earlier this year. Uh, could Carlos go and argue that he actually ultimately made the company and indeed perhaps even the Japanese car industry more competitive? No, his dynamism, his innovation, or is this nothing to do with him? No, undeniably. Look, if you look at Nissan today, it is a fraction of the size that it was before. And the fact that it's making slim profits now, um, you know, it's it's nowhere near what it used to be under Carlos Ghosn. Now, I mean, there are obvious there are things that Carlos Ghosn did. You know, you could question his decision making on how fast the company grew and whether or not Carlos Ghosn's desire to be the biggest car maker in the world was the right one to make. But it is undeniable that he led them to record profits and expanded them across the globe and saved them from possible bankruptcy. That's that's fact. Finally, uh, Sean, we don't hear much about the Japanese economy anymore. Of course, we heard it endlessly in the 1980s. You're a, a Wall Street Journal reporter there. What's your take on innovation broadly in Japan? Is there anything brewing there or is it remaining a, in some ways an also ran in the in the global economy and a, and a footnote to, to Chinese innovation? Well, I mean, I'm going to speak specifically as an automotive reporter because that's where I'm sort of best placed to to uh, to comment. But it is clear that the Japanese auto industry is 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 today and also ran in the sort of global race for electric cars and and general sort of cutting edge technology in cars. And, and in some ways, they resemble. Uh, Detroit in the 1970s when Japanese car makers entered in and, and identified what was next in the market, which was small, well-built, fuel-efficient cars and caught Detroit flat-footed. And I, there is a good chance that, 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 that Japanese automakers could be caught out the same way in the, the transition to the future of the automobile. How could they be so, and I use this word, carefully dumb i mean the, the the japanese missed the internet so their technological dominance in the 80s was quickly eclipsed by the internet now they've missed uh, uh, electric vehicles what else are they missing what why are they so slow why are they so short-sighted I well mean, it was obvious to anyone that electric vehicles was the future wasn't it i mean elon musk love him or hate him he certainly got that Look, I, I think there is a rational argument that electric cars are the technology of the future, as in not quite there yet, for at least another decade. That it's, said, like, it's like the old joke, Sean, about the, uh, the, the, the Brazilian economy. It's always the economy yeah, of the future. The it's always on the horizon, right? Yeah, exactly. And so... That's what Japanese car makers see. They take, for example, Toyota. They sell 10 million cars around the world. You know, a million and a half to two million of those are in the U.S. And what they look at the rest of the world, the rest of the world is buying what? 
They're buying their first cars in India and Indonesia and Southeast Asia or in China or in Russia. Like there's a lot of people buying or in Africa buying their first cars for the first time. And Toyota says, like, look, like we have to sell cars all over the world. And just because Elon Musk and, you know, 5% of the car buying public in the U.S. wants these battery powered cars, like, great, come to us when it's, you know, 10 million cars a year that we can sell. So there is a rational argument to be made. And certainly as there was a rational argument to be made by Detroit car makers back in the seventies and the eighties, that these tiny little cheap, you know, ramshackle looking Japanese cars are not what, you know, sort of Joe Smith in Detroit wants to buy. And certainly because that had been true for years and years and years, you could see how that, that is an argument um, that you could, you know, you could safely build a business strategy around. The danger is that, if you move so slowly and you're so stuck in your ways and seeing all the empirical evidence uh, showing you that electric cars are not the future yet, um, that you miss the boat on when they become the now. Yeah, I mean, they, they got the Prius. I mean, uh, Gone was, uh, he escaped Japan in a box. Um, you describe or others describe his escape uh, uh, in a guitar case as a comedy of errors. Maybe they should smuggle him back in. Don't they need Gone? I mean, I think they would love to. I mean, look, I think... They would love... You mean they'd, they'd like, they wish they could just go back to where they were before this whole absurd case blew up? Well, mm, that's a harder question to answer. I, I think that what... what Japan and certainly Nissan wish would happen is that Carlos Ghosn would stand trial so we could all move past this thing. And, and Carlos Ghosn's uh, actions is, has in, in, ensured that, you know, that there will always be an unsatisfactory ending from a legal standpoint uh, to the Carlos Ghosn story. Um, but honestly, Andrew, like I find like the criminality and the, and the legal dispute of, of the Carlos Ghosn story less interesting than, than, than the, the sort of moral tale of, of the Carlos Ghosn story. I mean, take, for example, the stuff on Oman, which I know you talked to Nick about at length, but you know, to me, ultimately, what's, what's the most interesting thing about that, that side of the story is, is not whether or not Carlos Ghosn stole money from Nissan and Renault. That is obviously important. But to me, it says everything about the man and, 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 and what makes the story interesting is that he decided it was a good idea to take $50 million from a man he does business with and set up like a personal side venture with the guy. Like, it's just, to me, like that, that betrays a level of hubris and, and shows the, the lack of oversight that, that he had in his, in his latter years at, at, at Renault and Nissan that he thought he could get away with it. And he thought it was a good idea. And that, you know, Carlos Ghosn had done no wrong for 30 years and therefore Carlos Ghosn could do no wrong in this instance too. It's just, it's just a fascinating character character study. But aren't all these geniuses flawed? I mean, we talked about Musk, his decision to buy Tesla may not have been illegal, but it was uh, not Tesla. Twitter was, I mean, it wasn't illegal, but it was certainly incredibly dumb. Um, I mean, with genius comes both insanity and stupidity. And that's, yeah, I was that's as true of Carlos Ghosn as it is of Elon Musk. Yeah, I was talking to people who who were involved in the sort of the the various plans to pay Gone and move money around and buying him these luxury homes in Brazil and and, and in uh, Lebanon. Um, 
and the, their their argument was that yeah, Carlos Ghosn was flawed. Yeah, he wanted he was obsessed with money, and yeah, he, he was he had all these issues with his character. But then that's just comes with the territory. All CEOs are slightly crazy; otherwise, it wouldn't be CEOs. I mean, so the answer is yes. And that's why you need checks and balances and you can't give these people free reign. I mean, if people are feel free to to say whatever they want in that in, in the position of being CEO, then then, yeah, they often will do so to the great. Well, you're not justifying the Japanese. I'm sure you're not justifying the Japanese criminal justice system. Sean McLean, the co-author of Boundless, The Rise and The Rise, Fall and the Escape of Carlos Ghosn. It's a fascinating story, both in itself and what it tells us about the car industry, the Japanese economy, and Japanese corporate culture. Congratulations, Sean, on the book. What else are you reading these days? Any other books that you would recommend our viewers and listeners? I'm going to point to a book that I feel um, is in the same vein as, 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 as Boundless, and that is a book called Black Edge by uh, Sheila Kolhotkar, a New Yorker um, a writer who uh, wrote a, uh, an amazing story about uh, Stephen Cohen, the hedge fund um, mm. man. And that is just an, another excellent retelling of a brilliant but flawed man. And it, it ends uh, like, like our book does in a slightly unsatisfying uh, way. If your if your concern is, is justice for, for, for people who have done wrong. We can go to bed now, Sean. All right. Thanks, Andrew.